Our scripture this morning is uh, taken from Genesis 25, uh, verses 21 through 28. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, you can grab one on, the, on your way out um, this morning, or if you want to um, jump out there now, you're, you're free to do that as a gift. Again, Genesis 25, 21 through 28. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning and welcome to the Olathe Campus of Christ Community Church. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's uh, good to be together to center ourselves um, on God's word, uh, together with God's people, to sing God's praises, um, for he has called us and drawn us uh, to this place this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into this story together. Father, we need your help as we look at your word God, I feel my inadequacy in this moment, and so I pray that your spirit would speak through me and that we would hear from you. God, I, I pray that you would convict us of our sin, but also comfort us with your grace. And would you give us a window into what we long for most? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I am about to turn 40. I thought he was way older than that. Seriously, that's rude, okay? Those of you who are thinking that, it's out of line. It's uncalled for. I'm almost 40, not quite there yet, a couple months to, uh, to go. Uh, no midlife crisis yet. Pretty sure I can see one from here, um, but it's, it, hasn't, it hasn't happened yet. And yet, as I, as I look back on my life, my almost 40 years, I'd like to think that I've learned a few things, right? In fact, wouldn't it be great if you could like sit down with younger you, like take a time machine back, you know, 20 years, 30 years, whatever, right? And just like have a conversation. Imagine what that would look like. You're sitting with yourself with young you over coffee. Like what advice would you give? Like what, what were the kind of things that you would, you would say to yourself at that point. I mean, I'd tell myself a few things. I'd like, don't burn down that field. Um, don't light off those fireworks and scare that woman into labor. If you forgot that story, that's, thank you for that. Um, invest in Google, like that'd be on my list of things that I'd tell younger, younger me. Um, you know, or, or you know, spend your time this way, not that way. Do this, don't do that. Give your life here. Like, there'd be things that you'd wanna say, right? As you look back, things that you would've done differently. What would you tell yourself? Now imagine this. 
What if later on this afternoon, future you got in a time machine, you know, just add 20 years to whatever age you are now, that you, got in a time machine and stop, stop worrying about the space-time continuum. It's going to be fine, okay? Uh, but future you like, came in and sat down and had coffee with you this afternoon. Like, picture that, right? What would future you have to say to you? What advice do you think you'd give yourself for the way that you're living your life today? What would future you want you to do? Like, for example, Nathan, it was a beautiful summer. Your kids are at these perfect ages, and yet you put them to bed early to binge watch Stranger Things. Listen, I will never regret that, okay? Never. But, like, seriously, though, like, think about it. Like, what, what kind of things would future me say about the choices that I'm, I'm making today? Because you and I, like, think about it. We spend so much time, don't we, trying to figure out what we want to do today, who we want to be right now. Have you ever asked yourself the question, who do I want to be when I'm 50? Or 30? Or... 70 or 90 or whatever, right? Who do you want to be then? All I, all I know, I don't know the specifics. All I know is I don't want to look back at that point with regret. I want to look back with joy. And so ask yourself, what would future you want you to do? I mean, would future me want me to eat this? Or buy that? or spend my time this way, or say that to my wife or parents in this way? Or let, me, let me ask it another way. Am I trading today for something so much better tomorrow? Are, are you with me? Like, am I going after short-term pleasure right now in the immediate? When you and I know what we both want, right, is long-term pleasure joy. What would future you want you to do? Would future me trade the promises of God for a bowl of stew? Wait, that just got weird, right? Well, that's our story today, believe it or not. Turn to Genesis 25 if you haven't already. We heard kind of the the preceding words, kind of building up to our our story uh, for this morning. But really, we're going to focus on this, this guy named Esau in particular. We'll talk more about Jacob next week. But Esau here, in the story we're going to look at, he becomes kind of like the ultimate warning story for all of us. Because he trades what future him would have done anything to receive. He trades away the promises of God for a moment of pleasure. Will we do the same? So let me, let me back up a little bit before we get into the, the narrative itself. So if you are here last week, Isaac and Rebecca got married, right? Now that was, that was last week. This story actually begins 20 years later already. 20 years pass. That's just when they get pregnant with Jacob and Esau. Because Rebecca, just like Sarah in our previous stories, just like Rachel in our future stories, is unable to have children. You might pick up on a theme here, right? God is building a family in the first three matriarchs, 
all of them are unable to have children. Sort of who God chooses, isn't it? God chose Rebecca. That was clear last week, but there is nothing about God's promises that come easily. And so Isaac prays, and 20 years later, Rebecca has twins. And it's clear from the beginning, from the part that Patrick read for us, like you can tell, okay, there's some tension going on here already, right? There's, there's a few things that the author kind of gives us clues to. Like you can kind of sense already that these brothers are going to be another sort of Cain and Abel. It's a story that kind of keeps playing itself out throughout Genesis, sinners from birth and at each other's throats. I mean, even, though, even the way they were born. So look at that. It's like Esau, he comes out first. He's the firstborn. He's the heir. And so the reader, if you've been with us throughout Genesis, the reader should assume, okay, Esau, this is, this is the guy. Like, this is the one that's going to continue God's promises moving forward. That should be our assumption. And Jacob, Jacob comes out second, but he's like gripping on to Esau's heel, right? It's like they're racing to see who gets out of the womb first. And we're going to find out Jacob, he like really wants this. Esau couldn't care less. Now, as they, as they grow up, so we're fast-forwarding fast quite a bit far, farther into the story here. As they grow up, Esau, we find out, he's kind of the manly man, right? That's how the, the author describes him. He's the hunter, right? The hairy guy. And Jacob says that he's more of a quiet type, right? A little bit more reserved. And, and Isaac and Rebekah haven't been the best parents, right? Because you hear how that ended, but Patrick read, like, it said that Rebecca loved Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. Like, this is just a recipe for disaster, right? You can kind of sense it happening here already in these early, early words. And why did, why did Isaac love Esau? Because he was a hunter and he brought him meat. I mean, that's what, that's what it says. Like, can you imagine? Like, I love meat as much as the next person, but I'm not going to pick my favorite kid over which one brings me meat, right? So this is, this is all the background. Now we get to our actual story this morning. Verse, verse 29, here's where it picks up. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And then go to verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And if you're like, what on earth is this story? Well, you're, you're not alone. Let's, let's try to explain it a little bit. Because it's like culturally, we're in a very different place from these folks. But it's, it's important to note. So first of all, like Jacob is being a stinker here. Okay, this is, this is most likely premeditated. He's exploiting his brother's weakness, and God is going to deal with Jacob next week. Okay, we'll get there. Believe me, God is going to deal with him. But what, what Jacob wants in, it, in and of itself is a good thing. And so Jacob, he's no hero, but Esau, Esau's the worst. Because he's, he's not starving. He comes in all melodramatic, right? I'm so hungry, right? I'm dying, right? But he's not, he's not dying. He's hungry. That's it. Like the author says he came in from the field. He didn't come in from some harrowing experience or some long journey. He hasn't been lost in the wilderness for six months. No, he's been in the field. 
like doing his, his daily work. Like when I get home from work, I'm hungry too, right? But I'm not dying, okay? It's dinner time. And he's just like over the top ridiculous. And, and most commentators will point out that kind of Esau, even in his language here, he just kind of keeps prattling on. Like he uses so many words in the first half of the story and almost none in the second half of the story. It's like just, it's so melodramatic. And even, even the Hebrew that he uses, commentators refer to it as kind of like a substandard, almost like a caveman language. So like literally when he comes in, what he says is basically, give me some of that red, red. That's what he calls it, red, red. Like, red stew is my favorite, right? I don't, I don't know why he's got that deep of voice. Maybe it's just the, the hairiness and the southern accent. It's up to you. You can figure that out. Um, but it's like, it's like this sort of archaic red, red. I want red, red, right? And even the, even the word for eat that's used here is used for feeding animals. So, like, the author wants us to know, like, this is not, this is not okay, right? This is not normal hunger, it's basically, it's like he's like, mmm, num, num, right? That's, that's kind of what he's doing here. It's ridiculous. And what the author is pointing us to is that Esau, he just loves food too much, right? It turns him, this, it turns him into like some sort of idiot to be able to get more of it. And remember, like this is why his dad loves him, because of his meat that he brings him. This is like a classic father-son, like father-like son sort of situation. Like they're just obsessed with food. And later on, Jacob is gonna deceive his father with food. Like this is a family problem for these two guys. And yes, again, like Jacob has his own issues. God is gonna deal with Jacob, okay? We'll get to that. But it is clear Esau is enslaved to his own appetites and he is about to trade something of eternal significance for a bowl of red red. Because what's, what's really at stake here? The birthright. Okay, who cares? Right. I mean, culturally, that means nothing to us, but in the ancient Near East, this was everything. Because not, not only would the firstborn typically receive a double share of inheritance, right, which is a big deal, it was also the place of highest significance and, and respect. And so just culturally, it's a big deal. But, but more than that, the reader, us, like we should be knowing at this point in the story, if you've been with us, like there's something else at, on, on the line here, right? Because regardless, regardless of what Jacob and Esau believe at this point about God, and I, I mean, at this point, I have my doubts about both of them. I don't, I don't think they know Yahweh yet. That'll come later for Jacob. Yet I'm sure they've heard the stories. I mean, growing up in that home, Yahweh this, Yahweh that, God's promises, Grandpa Abraham. Like, they'd, they'd heard the story, surely they had but I'm not sure they believe it. I don't, think, I don't think either of them really know what's at stake, but we do, right? Because God promised to make a family to redeem the world. And so what we should be wondering at this moment is, is that promise gonna go through Jacob or is it gonna go through Esau? Will it be Abraham, Isaac, and Esau or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a lot at stake here. And yet verse 32, 
Of what use is a birthright to me? And then Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. They'd heard the stories. Yeah, but what use is any of that to me? I'm hungry. And I know it seems silly. It's just a bowl of stew. Who really cares? And yet, like, this is how temptation works, isn't it? Desires cloud our reason. Consequences vanish from our imagination. God's promises become worthless. Future you is silenced. Just smells so good. And as it overcomes us, it's as if God is dead to us. All for that quick moment of relief. That's often how long it lasts, isn't it? Let me even look at verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went. Like, do you see how brusquely it ends compared to the first half of the story when Esau just keeps prattling on? Now it's just four verbs to describe him. He ate, drank, rose, went. That's it. End of story. I mean, once the deed is done, right? He got what he came for. It's like gossip, right? It tastes so good coming out followed by hollow regret. Or lust. All you can think about is that website or that illicit relationship, but as soon as it's over, and we do the same thing with power, money, shopping, alcohol, food. The one who couldn't shut up when he was so hungry is now completely silent. Because in, in many ways, what the author is doing here is he's, he's sort of showing us a retelling of the Adam and Eve story, right? Back in Genesis 3, when they blew it. Like, we've seen this pattern all throughout Genesis. Like, just about every story, it feels like. Adam and Eve, they failed the test. So did Cain. So did Noah after the ark. So did the builders of the great tower. So did Abraham several times. Lot and his family. Now Esau. Another test, another failure. Ever since we leave the garden, we humans just can't get it right. And what's his sin? Again, it's just a bullet stew. Who really cares? But listen how the author sums it up in verse 34. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He treated God's promises with contempt. I don't want that. And he betrays his future self for a moment of satisfaction. Hebrews 12 uh, in the New Testament writes about this story um, and uses it as a warning for, for Christians. Listen, listen to what the author says there in the New Testament. To see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
Even there in the New Testament, right, he's pointing back to this story here in Genesis as well as the story a couple chapters later in Genesis 27. This is like when when Esau realizes what he's done. He sort of comes to his senses and he realizes that he's also lost the blessing. That's another story where Jacob, that time he tricks his dad and and he receives the blessing. And and when Esau realizes what what he's lost, it says, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. but it did no good. Future him regretted it. He would have done anything to go back. Future him couldn't believe his foolishness for red, red. But future him can't change the past. And so future him died in regret. It could have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau the father of the Jewish people, the focus of the entire Old Testament, it could have been his family and the genealogy of Jesus. It could have been Esau. But it's not. And the book of Hebrews, which is written written to us as Christians, couldn't be clearer that you and I could do the same. It is a warning to us. Future you could hate you for your choices. Do you believe that? So what would future you want you to do? I think there are three lessons from the story in particular as we try to answer that question. What would future me want, this me right now, how would he want me to live my life? Three, three lessons from the story. First, lesson number one, and this is so hard for us, we don't believe this in our culture today. The lesson number one is that there are things in life you can lose and never get back. There are things in your life and mine that you can lose and never get back. And again, we don't, we don't believe that because we, we tend to think culturally, like in this place, like we, we just sort of assume that our lives are like a, a choose-your-own-adventure story that always has a happy ending, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do along the way. You can make your own path. You can do whatever you want, but you, you know it's going to turn out all right, right? That's our assumption culturally, Come on, there's always going to be more chances. I'll always have an opportunity to make it up to my kids. She'll forgive me. I'll have time for that later. And if all else fails, I'll fix my regret in therapy. Besides, I'll do better next time. Sure, God can forgive you. Absolutely, He can but that does not eliminate the natural consequences of our sin. And you, you know the stories, how we can lose so much so quickly. I mean, the relationship that's ruined with a word, integrity that vanishes for a quick financial gain. You don't even know what you did with the money anymore, right? The way a spouse or kids will never be the same because of your controlling abuse. Or, or a good friend of mine, and you, like, you know this story. Like, you have your own story of this same kind. But a good friend of mine, my age, a former pastor, wife, kids, like, all of it lost in a moment. All of it. Has God forgiven him? Yes, I, be- I believe that. Has he learned his lesson? Absolutely. Will his life ever be the same? No. 
Will there ever be a day that goes by that he doesn't regret it? No. Will he ever stop hating himself? I hope so. Listen, friend. Jesus doesn't want to just save you from your sins. He wants to save you from a lifetime of regret. That with Jesus, obedience isn't just right, it is better. So ask yourself, what would future you want you to do? That's the first lesson from the story. Second, second lesson is your appetites can serve you or enslave you. They can serve you or enslave you. I mean, in their place, our appetites are good, right? God gave them to us. I, I mean, I love food, and I, I don't know about you, but I would really love to try some red red right now to see what all the fuss was about, right? Like, food is great. And other things, right? Alcohol in moderation, sex and marriage, you know, Netflix and whatever else, like in their right places, but lose control of any of your desires, any of your appetites. And it could haunt you for the rest of your life. Paul reflects on this in, in Philippians. Listen to what he says. It's in Philippians 3 in the New Testament. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Like, Paul is just broken about this, right? They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. What does it look like to make Jesus your enemy? It looks like making your belly your God. Letting your desires rule you. Which again, this is really hard for us in our culture because our highest value, right? As a culture, our highest value is freedom to fulfill my desires. Like that is how we divine the good life. Nobody can tell me what to do. I will do whatever I want, whenever I want, no matter what, right? That's the good life for us culturally. Why would I ever deny myself anything? I mean, seriously, even just ask yourself, like, when's the last time you've denied yourself? It was just a little red stew. But what did it cost? And what we often don't realize is that the small decisions we make are, often lead to so many more, don't they? I mean, think about that. It was, just, it was just a little gossip about a person you didn't even care about. And then you did it for a friend. And then you did it for your best friend, and now you're alone. It was, it was just a little lust, right? That became a little pornography. That became an affair. It was so little at the beginning. It was just that one time you lost your temper with your spouse or your kids. Until the next time. And it only escalated. Because the reality is, like, church, we are always being formed, you and I. We are always becoming. We're never, we're never the same person that we, today that we were yesterday, right? Because we're always changing. Every choice you make, everything you do, every decision leads to another. And yes, we can lose it in a moment, but it's almost never just that moment, right? It's preceded by a thousand other moments in which you are training yourself either to pass the test or fail it. To give in to your belly and your own desires or to submit to the God who loves you. Who are you becoming? How are your appetites shaping you? Because real freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want. That's a lie our culture tells us. Real freedom comes in the power to say no to your desires. 
True, true freedom comes with the ability to say no to what you think you want right now for something you're going to want more, even, even more in the future. That's, that's freedom. And I'm convinced that God has offered us right now from this day forward a life free of regret. A life where he shows you where real joy is. Where a life that future you will thank you for. And so what would future you want you to do? And finally, third lesson. Third lesson, you can decide today who you want to become tomorrow. You can decide today who you want to become tomorrow. Who are you going to let rule your life? Who are you going to let call the shots? Is it going to be your belly? Your desires, whatever appetites you happen to have in the moment, is that what's going to call, is that going to determine your existence? Or will it be the God who made you? Maybe, maybe another way of, of asking this question is, what do you want people to say at your funeral? I mean, we hate thinking about that, right? Because we just foolishly believe we're always going to be here, right? We're never, we're never going, I'm, I'm not going to die, are you kidding me? But what do you want said at your funeral? It's not just going to happen, right? What do you want? I've done a lot of funerals. In my 14 years as a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals. And I've, I've done them in situations where the person has lived well, loved well, died well, in the hope of Jesus. And it's hard. Those are painful because death always is, and yet there's joy underneath it. I've also done funerals that are the exact opposite of all of that. I mean, I can remember one in particular where, uh, I mean, it was obvious within five minutes that every person there was glad the person was dead. What's the difference? Every single day. Living with the end in mind. Saying no to dumb things so that you can say yes to the best things. A life surrendered to something bigger than my own desires. What would future you want you to do? Because you and I, we're so much like Esau, aren't we? I mean, he's easy to, easy to point to. He's like this, this classic warning example of this, like, don't be like this guy, right? But we're so similar. We love the immediate. We want to be gratified now. We don't want to wait for anything. And if you're a Christian, like the reality is every time you sin, every time you trade for what you want now in the, in the immediate instead of what God wants for you, you also despise your birthright. Because if you're a Christian, we, we've been adopted into this family. Yahweh is our dad. Jesus is our brother. And so the question remains, like Esau, how are we going to pass this test? Because it comes every day. Every moment is an opportunity. How are we going to pass? Well, let me tell you how. It's the, one of Jacob's descendants, not Esau's, by the way. But did you know that there was a time when Jesus was really hungry? I often don't think of Jesus that way, but like, dude was seriously hungry. Like hungry, hungry. Not like long day in the field hungry, but 40 days, no food. So like truly starving. And Satan comes to him and says, you know, I'll give you bread. Like I'll, I'll satisfy your belly, but all you have to do is give up on that foolish quest to save those humans. But Jesus passed the test. Where Adam and Eve failed, where Esau fails, where you and I 
fail. Jesus passed. Instead of trading a moment of satisfaction for the redemption of all things, he denied himself and eventually took up his cross. He died for our regrets and our failures. And he gives us credit for his victory. Like it's as if we pass, Jesus passed the test for you. And it gets even better than that because the same spirit who lives in him, who empowered him to say no to what he legitimately desired. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit lives in all who trust in him. Do you believe that? You have that same power in you. You don't have to eat red red anymore. You don't have to drink like that or yell like that or gossip like that or lust like that or or use your power like that. You don't have to do that anymore because of Jesus. Like with, with him, there is... There's freedom. You don't have to turn to sin to fill you, to satisfy you anymore. Do you believe that? And so what would future you want you to do? Run to Jesus today. In just a moment, we're going to eat together of another meal. Instead of this, this stew that destroys, right, this feast that satisfies that nourishes not just our body, but our souls. But before we go to the Lord's table this morning, I want to take just a minute to reflect, confess, and reorient our loves. We've got a couple of, of statements um, we're going to put on the screen here. You can take, take a minute here and just fill in the blank mentally. If I continue to blank, and you know what it is, chances are, right? I could end up blank. Or if I don't start doing something, I could end up blank. Why don't we take the next minute, um, think about those things, ask God to show you the path that you're on, repent if you need to, and run to Jesus. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Holy Father, we confess our sins to you. That we have broken your covenant, broken your promises, we have broken your heart. And God, I pray that we would acknowledge our shortcomings before you, and we would turn from our sins, and that we would run to Jesus. For Jesus, we are so grateful that you offer us forgiveness through your life, death, and resurrection, that you pass the test for us, and now, Holy Spirit, you empower us. Help us know that we, we're not slaves anymore. We don't have to give in to our, to our bellies, to our desires, that we can live for something so much better than the immediate. But you have to do that work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So often, it is true in our lives that the heartache, the grief, the pain, the the sorrow, the regret that we feel is so often caused from us choosing to to sacrifice a life of future joy and fulfillment for, for the futile and fleeting immediate feelings of pleasure that are so hollow and empty. We all know that feeling. Odds are you were able to fill in those blanks that Nathan had for us as we reflected and prayed. 
And my hope and prayer for all of us is that we could come to understand the truth and the joy that there is greater joy to be found in Christ Jesus, living, following him, living in step with the spirit, knowing that he provides the life we long for greater than anything else that our hearts can pursue apart from him. And I know that is the truth that is hard for us to wrap our minds and hearts around. But the more we understand the depth of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, that he has extended to us everything we need and desire in him, the things that tempt us so easily become less and less desirable. As we turn our eyes upon Jesus, that old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim and light of his glory and grace. May that be the truth that forms us and shapes us as a people, because all of us are going to find ourselves tomorrow in a place where we are forced to ask these questions, will I settle for this immediate gratification now, or will I seek to live in obedience to God, awaiting the future joy that is mine in Christ Jesus? Well, as we prepare to to leave this place, being the church gathered in this space, to being the church scattered in the places God calls us, uh, I wanted to share this word from Romans chapter 6 as our good word, our benediction, as we leave this place into the places God has called us. May these words shape us as a people. Romans chapter 6, Paul declares to us the beauty of what is ours in Christ. He says, brothers and sisters, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under law, you are under grace. Go and live in light of this grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. Amen. Have a great week.